Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. I'm your host Spencer Lodge and it's my job to make the time you're about to give me as valuable as possible. My job here is to share content I've made across all of my endeavors and ventures as an entrepreneur and bring you stories, lessons and insights from my conversations with some of the great achievers in business and personal development. Essentially that's bringing interesting people to you. I'm an author of a book called Making It Happen. I'm the CEO of the Blue Sky Thinking Group here in Dubai, and I'm a really passionate content creator. I'm also on my own creative journey, and with so much going on, this show is a way for me to funnel out value from all the work my team and I are doing so we can share it with our audiences online in an easy audio format. For those that attend my seminars or follow me on social media, this is just some extra material so you can get stuck into it on your own journey in business, sales, personal development, or whatever aspect you are working on improving your life. In today's episode, I'll be doing that by sharing an interview I did with a guy called Omar Albaswadi. We recorded it in May of last year. Now, Omar is the author, author of a book called Just Read It. I know he's currently writing another book at the moment, but I'll come back to that one. He's a futurist, a tech entrepreneur, a radio presenter, and a well-known figure in the world of media here in the UAE. We were introduced to, through a good friend of ours called Sarah Almadani, and I'll share more about that when I come back at the end of the interview. Now, the interview lasts for approximately 35 to 40 minutes, and I really enjoyed it because what you'll find is that Omar talks about failure in a really honest and open way. And by understanding his journey and how many times he failed, it really does give you an insight into how entrepreneurs really do just keep going. I know there are a lot of incredible takeaways, especially if you're currently an entrepreneur or someone's looking to grow your business or you're, you know, you're just someone out there that just wants to be better than you already are. So look out for that, okay? Omar really has got lots to say. If you enjoyed several of these podcasts or if you're the first one, I'd really love for you to rate and review the show. Ideally, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that would make me so, so happy, okay? Or if you left some love on SoundCloud comments, again, that would just help the show get discovered. So if you're ready to get stuck in, I really hope you enjoy my interview with Omar. Remember, at the end of the interview, I'll be back to tell you more about how the interview took place, what I've learned and applied, and share a few extra notes about the content. But without further ado, Omar Albaswadi. Omar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Spencer. It's really cool to have you here. Thank okay, you. we've just been talking for the last few minutes. You're a real character. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. So, so tell me, a one minute background, who you are, where you're from, okay, a little bit about your story, and then I'll dig into that a bit deeper, and uh, we'll try and find out some cracks in his armor and see if he shares some stuff with us. Okay, cool. So I'm uh, Omar Al-Busaidi. I'm 31 years old. I'm from the United Arab Emirates. Uh, studied marketing at the American University in Dubai, and I'm studying entrepreneurship and innovation at the Hamdan bin Mohammed Smart University at the moment. I work at the Abu Dhabi Tourism and Culture Authority as the head of aviation development and I have a business, uh, I have a, a barbershop called W Gents in Dubai as well as we're the importers of a product called Fresh Feel from Spain. It's a shampoo, body wash, etc. Okay. And we and yeah, the last, I'm also the author of a book called Just Read It. It's a book about entrepreneurship. It's a self-help personal development book on entrepreneurship. And I'm working on my second book, which is called What's Next, will be hopefully published by the end of this year or beginning of 2018. And 
I'm also a global shaper with the World Economic Forum. They have like young global leaders. I'm definitely sure you know some of them. The idea is the global shapers are uh, people like-minded who are together and, and they work on social projects. You know? So I talk about entrepreneurship and youth development and everything. Okay. Youth There's quite a lot of things that you do. Yeah, it's a lot of things, but I, 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 um, I'm, I'm active in some things and I'm inactive in others. As, I, as we go on, I'll tell you more about what, I, what I'm more focused on. Okay, so let's talk about entrepreneurship to start. Sure. Where is it in your family history that there's an entrepreneur that's inspired you? Is, is there anybody in there that's made, you know, as you grew up, made you feel like, is there an uncle, cousin? You know, I know, you know your dad was in the military, you said yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Where, where does it come from? I, I, I love that question because the person is my uncle, my mom's brother. Didn't graduate, he dropped out of high school. Okay. He dropped out of high school, started off, he was catching fish, you know, working on the, on the boat and uh, traveling on a, on a ship all over the world. Then he worked for an airline and he also was a football player uh, and everything. But then he just learned from the streets, but yet always remained very humble. Got married to his wife who studied computer programming in Sunderland. And she married somebody who dropped out of high school. Next thing you know now, he is one of the biggest agents for some of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, in Oman. Uh, and my uncle always took me along with him to all his business meetings since I was like 14, 15 years old. And taught me the art of you know, negotiation and everything and, and just listening, actually. Listening was more important. So he just said, just ask tons of questions. He was a very, he's a very quiet man. And then he just makes these crazy decisions, next thing you know. So his name is Isa, Isa Al-Rawahi, and he's my inspiration. And does he know that he's your inspiration? Yeah, he does. I think I've done too many interviews and even wrote about him in my book and everything. So I think he knows quite clearly that he is. Okay. So define to me, in your understanding, what is an entrepreneur? After all these experiences, when I tell you about some of the businesses that I did and everything, I think an entrepreneur, number one, is somebody that doesn't want to go to the office and sign in at like nine o'clock and then leave out 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that was number one. Number two, they, they definitely want not only to be independent, but they want to make it happen. They want to make things happen. That's, that's what it is. Uh, whether it could be in, in any sector, you will notice that whenever an entrepreneur comes in, they, they can see clearly that there is a problem and or there's an opportunity and mm -hmm. they just want to fill that gap. So every time I speak to anyone, they always, they always like, you know what? It's not that you just want to do this because they, they can make money out of it. Yes, that's, that's definitely one. But they also see that this is an opportunity to just to be the bridge between supply and demand. So that's where they, that's what I think an entrepreneur is. So tell me in a part of your journey where you've used your entrepreneurial flair, okay, and failed. Sure. So... There was a significant boom in the real estate sector in Dubai mm -hmm. in about 2004, 2005, mm -hmm. etc. And one of the things that was very clear for anyone who was in Dubai at the time would see there was ads in every corner of Dubai, mm -hmm. newspapers to whatever, and you would see like massive pages. You'd see these hoardings on the street that would go for maybe like at least 50 meters or a lot, lot longer, maybe 100 meters or more, just on one project. Yeah. So when you start to do, you know, to investigate and find out how much money was being paid to just put out an ad there, it was insane. 
So I wasn't able to get into the, you know, the, the platform, for the advertising platform, but what I was able to do is the branding, the advertising. So, so these clients would need business cards, would need the design, would need you know, letterheads, all these things. My partner and I, we decided to pick up an office on Sheikh Zayed Road mm -hmm. and then start a design agency, a branding agency. Uh, we started that, but so what was happening is we were getting a lot of work and going out to clients and everybody wanted to have as, something as small as a business card. And I knew how that worked because at that time I also had experience because I was working and studying at the same time. And I knew how much people were paying to get, to get even a logo designed, just the logo and how much money that would, you could make from it. So all I needed was a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. So it was not really rocket science. I'm not a graphic designer. I just had to get graphic designer and then I would get the business. The only issue with that is cash flow mm -hmm. because you had two options. Either they would pay you an upfront of only 10% mm -hmm. the total value or sometimes nothing. And they'd say, okay, give me a proposal. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're done preparing a proposal, like the design and everything, yeah. it will take you at least a minimum, minimum two weeks, if not three sometimes. So you're already reaching the end of the cycle, the month, and then you need to pay your overheads. So the, I didn't have enough cash flow. If I refuse that business, the problem was there were too many other larger agencies that would get paid, if not, not even a month or two months, they'd get paid a, a year later and it was fine for them. They'd be, because of their global presence, they were able to sustain themselves. So you're competing with the likes of Leo Burnett and yeah. Horizon, FCB, all these large agencies. Yeah. And I was just like a really, really small fish. And um, yeah, and I think, and I, so poor planning, is the reason why I, you know, and, and the lack of cash flow is why I, mm -hmm. uh, and also when I later on, I came across the book like Blue Ocean Strategy and you understand that you need to go after different types of clientele. I was just going after the big fish and I was getting them, but they were not paying. Had I gone to smaller businesses, yeah, maybe I would have been lucky because they don't pay the larger agencies, the kind of fees that they would charge. But mm -hmm. I was young and I was stupid, and that's what happened. So that was, was the a valuable lesson from that. You know, the, uh, and the lesson was, again, it's Blue Ocean Strategy. So Blue Ocean Strategy, for those who don't know what this is, mm -hmm. and it was written by two professors from a very good business school. They say that if everyone's going after the same type of clients and in one area of the ocean, of the market, there are so many different types of fish in a huge ocean mm -hmm. that you should go out and fetch that. Don't go after the same ones. You can go in, in the same market, but you can find the smaller type of fish or different types or whatever. You can find your own niche, basically. Mm -hmm. I should have gone after my own niche and I would have probably been successful in that because it was really easy to get, you know. But saying that though, cash flow is always a problem for a startup business. It is. And it I don't is. think people realize that. They think about revenue yeah. more so than they think about cash flow. So exactly. it seems to be a hiccup that people have when they're building their businesses. Yes. And Assumption is the mother of all screw-ups. <laughs> I assumed that clients would, okay, at least pay up to 30. <clears throat> and, and, and that was kind of like the norm. But even if they didn't stick to their word and they went up to 60 or 90 days, what are you going to do, sue them? You can't, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you can try everything, but you, you don't have enough 
backing to, or legal backing or something to go after them and say, listen, you didn't stick to mm -hmm. this timeline and, and now I'm in trouble. So you just have to take it. And so when you see that experience that you've had, you've made a mistake, you say you were stupid, so you've you, you know, you, you got to learn from that. Yeah, then, yeah. 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 Tell me a business venture that you've done Next. since oh, okay. that, or that's made you, that you've taken those lessons yeah. and you've gone, right, I'm not making that mistake again. I'm going to set a new business up and that new business is not going to have those problems. Okay, so then after that, I went off trying to start a boutique store selling women's dresses and wedding gowns because the number of, you know, you, it's very simple. You don't even actually need to do any math with it. People buy dresses every single time. There's so many weddings, occasions and stuff and they don't want to wear the same dress again. Yeah. So when they told me this, and you know, the, the prices of wedding dresses here, like a minimum decent one can go for as less as $10,000. You know, you look at the dresses in the US, they cost maybe a couple of hundred dollars. So, you know, all I did was import those dresses, sell them here. However, we opened the store in a very bad location, like really, really bad. And, and the area was not just ideal for it. And slowly, as in the beginning, I was appealing to this clientele because they're like, okay, they liked who I was, etc. They would come, but they would never return because they didn't like the location. And one was the one of the problem apart from this was exclusivity. When I got those brands specifically, I didn't realize that there were some people who were buying it just to find out what brand they were, and then they managed to open in some of the larger shopping malls and buy. And I tried to get exclusivity, but the person refused to give me exclusivity because she was like, you don't have any experience. I can't risk that. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't get exclusivity. The same dresses or the same brands were at the shopping mall. So if somebody can go and get the full shopping mall experience rather than going down in the main street where I was next to like a restaurant and all the smell would come into the fitting room. So lesson that, number two. Okay. So you made mistakes more than one. Oh yeah, yeah. Then the third one. You made another mistake. Oh yeah. There was another one. So I had a company then uh, called Connections Middle East. With my experience in business development, etc., I realized that also lots of businesses and business people that want to come to the UAE and do business in the region, or particularly in the UAE. So I set up Connections Middle East because I had a lot of contacts. I still have a lot of contacts and people were always asking me if I would partner with them. But there were so many companies asking me the same question. So I said, you know what, okay, I won't partner with you, but I'll open up this business and then I'll, I'll work with you this way. So I'm an extension of your business. I'll be your business development, but I'm a company, pay into the company mm -hmm. rather than paying me. And that did not do well because, Why? very simple, there was two things. First, the global financial crisis hit so hard, many of those companies went into liquidation. Second thing, most of the biggest buyers in the, in the, in the UAE are the government departments. And the government departments were not paying for almost a year, two years. I mean, you know, this is no secret. You could read the newspapers all over the world. Everybody was complaining if, if the likes of the global companies were, were raising their concerns with international organizations, the press, about how they were not getting paid. Imagine the ones I was dealing with. So it was even worse because if anything, the government was trying to pay off those major companies yeah. for big projects, big mega projects, and then pay the rest of us. It was really just really, really bad. I mean, you so couldn't do three anything. failures over how long a period? Was that three or four every years? Every two years. Every two, six years. years? Six years, yeah. Did it stifle your desire? Did it make you feel that maybe it's not going to happen for you? Or did you just keep persevering with a bloody-minded attitude that you had? What, what was it like for you emotionally? 
people definitely were telling me, you know what, this is not for you, okay? But I'm a firm believer that this is made for me. I know in my gut, I'm like, look, I've got too much knowledge in my head and too much skill that I just let it, leave it to waste like this. I just, I know that there's something out there that's definitely meant for me. And my uncle, Isa, which I mentioned earlier, he always told me, Omar, there's no such thing as failure. Only trials. All these are trials. He always repeats those words to me. That kept me thinking and every, after all these experiences is, uh, and obviously I, I also mentioned earlier, I was married one time. When that failed, I was actually really, really at my lowest point because um, I also lost my job. Uh, so I lost my job. I lost those businesses. Uh, I lost that. Well, actually I gained when leaving the, my ex-wife. And then as I just sat down, eight months, unemployed, nothing. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find a job and I just sat down. I was, I was just sitting in my, in my mom's place. And the first two months I was really depressed and I felt like you know I, I didn't deserve to be in this world. I don't know what was going on. But then after that I gathered myself and I got myself involved in a lot of like uh, volunteering work. I started doing a lot more work in, in orphanages and in different centers. And then uh, that's when I started using my mind and I wrote the book. I started writing. So I started writing all these thoughts that were in my head. So did, I, did, I, did, when you were writing them as they were in your head, were you writing them with the purpose of writing a book or were you just diarizing I, stuff? Just diarizing stuff. Just, just, yeah. Sticking no, stuff I, in, no, just, it was just getting your thoughts down on paper. Exactly, just getting my thoughts on paper. So I start, I wrote, so, so the way I, I start writing, a lot of people ask me sometimes, how do you write or whatever? So what I did is, I just wrote bullet points on everything. So I wrote bullet points, like I wrote assumption, communication, uh, networking, friendship, this, etc. So I just wrote bullet points. So it's like a table of content. And then I started developing content or the literature under each of, of these points. And then I've always had it and I never had the intention of publishing the book until when I finally got a job and I met somebody, I met a work colleague and she was, she was a member of a book club and she told me she likes reading books. I said, you know what? I wrote something, some material. It's not really a book, it's just thoughts, you know? I gave it to her, she's like, oh my God, Omar, you should publish this book. And I was like, nah, I'm not gonna do it. And I didn't do anything, I didn't even listen to her. I just gave it to her. But on my birthday, she came back, and on my birthday, she, she actually had printed, designed the book and everything. So she, she's like self-published it, but it wasn't sold, it wasn't in the market, but she made like five copies and she gave it to me like that as a gift. I was like, wow, it was designed, it was ready. Gosh. And then that was her message to me, as in go out, find yourself a publisher and do it. And Awesome, <laughs> just awesome. What <laughs> a cool it. lady. <laughs> Have faith and belief in you. I know, right? Wow, So that, that was, genuinely is. Yeah. I mean, I never heard anyone do something like yeah. that. No but way. you could have, after getting that book, there was no way in the world you couldn't then do that, is no, there? I, there was no, no yeah, option. Yeah, exactly. I, I, and I just had to do it because when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this looks like a, I'm like, I could see this in the bookstores. So now as I walk into like the Virgin Megastore or Kinokonia in Dubai Mall and it feels really good. That's magic. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> so my audience will be thinking, some of them will be thinking that Emiratis, yeah. Okay. As well as probably a lot of people within the GCC, Emiratis have got access to people that maybe others living in this part of the world don't. 
Yeah. Also, maybe access to money. Yeah. Do you think that Emiratis have an unfair advantage as entrepreneurs, or do you think that's just a facade? We do have an advantage. We have an, a, a massive advantage, and especially the fact that if some people are familiar with this, um, with, with what we have, uh, we, we have several entities that are that are supported by the government to support entrepreneurs. Like they literally, the government's come out to us and said, "Here's." A pile of cash, come to us with a really good idea, and take the money, and do something with it. You know, and 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 that kind of privilege, I don't think people in many parts of the world don't have. To have that, I feel like we should be able to, to do a lot of things. However, I think the the disadvantage we have, which, yes, we can talk about all these things, but remember what we're talking about are all the things on the surface. The disadvantages we have is what's beneath. And what I'm talking about, it's that grit, it's the, the attitude, it's all those things on the inside, the things that make an entrepreneur. Because real entrepreneurs have gone through some major hurdles or hardships and, Struggle, and all yeah. those and struggles. And Yes, when we a lot of them get free education and everything. When you when you get that education and every, we have a cushion. The cushion is the disadvantage. There's so many of them that say, you know what? I don't need to because if you think about it, if you think of a startup, and in the beginning, you know, it'll take you a couple of years until let's say you actually start earning ten thousand dollars a month or something. But if the average Emirati starting working at a public sector earns between seven to ten thousand dollars a month. Then they'll think to themselves, "Okay, I have an option of doing this, working a certain amount of hours, or do I do this and go through all that?" Now, they could do that, but you know what they also need? They need encouragement from everybody around them mm -hmm. to tell them to do that. Mm -hmm. From home, home to their friends and their peers and everybody else. But that's the problem. They don't get that. They always are told to take the easier option. So that's the biggest all, all the time. And let me be honest. My mother hates the fact that I want to go into business. She prefer that I'm in a government position or something like that. But because, my uncle, her brother, and exactly. that safety is in yes. her mind is more sensible. Yes. And you know, I can understand her. My uncle, who's a complete opposite of her. I'm like, I'm, sometimes I feel you two are not even related. And, <laughs> and, and he's telling me, no, I'm what, you're doing this now, it's fine. But make sure you plan that you have to have another income. And you got to do something on the side. And there's so much potential. There's so much potential for you to do so many things out there. You can speak well, you can talk to people, you're good with people. So why not, you know? Tell me about what your perception of or the importance of salespeople and business developers are in entrepreneurial businesses. Especially in this part of the world, 80% comes down to communication, which is the major skill set required for a business developer or a salesman or a woman here. And if you don't focus on that skill, on how you, and when I say communication, it's verbal, nonverbal, everything else, the cultural etiquette, all of those things, and the protocol. If you don't understand all those things, you're not gonna go anywhere. So 80% of it depends on that. And the 20% is the actual business transaction, as we were speaking earlier about. Mm -hmm. In business, when you study, there's something known as 
low context cultures. We are in a high context culture. Mm -hmm. We still hold on to so many things as family relations, you know, your favorite Premier League team, it better be Chelsea. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're a Chelsea fan, but I'm not going to ask you. But anyways, <laughs> you're, you are and, 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 and etc. So if you're on the good side of, of all that, then yeah, it can take you a long way. Okay, so if you, if you were to go and want to learn those skills yeah. here in the UAE, yeah. is there a university that teaches people how to sell? I think Make It Happen University. No, that's, that's, what I, that's what I do. Yes, exactly. That's how my business came yeah. about because in the United States, in the UK, yeah. then there's not anything here that teaches people. Yeah. How, how do, when you think about entrepreneurs, sure. I, I think about entrepreneurs, you could be working in network marketing. Yeah. You're building a business within a business. Yeah. If you work in real estate and you're a commission-only salesperson, you're building a business within a business because yeah. your revenue comes from your efforts. Yeah. So it always fascinates me to understand how many people put a lot of importance on that particular area. Sure. When you wrote your book, what did you focus on when you wrote your book? Did you, you said to me earlier about common sense and stuff that everybody already knows. Yeah. When, when you've had the reviews of your book, what have people said about it? And you're about to write another one, so tell sure. me a bit more about that. So the, the first book is all about emotional and social intelligence. That's what it's all about. And why it is key to focus on these two skills, it's because Again, answering your question before this, reputation. Reputation is everything. And especially in a country like this, and now with also with social media, the moment you do something wrong, it goes viral. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, before we would, fine, before it was just the mainstream media, but now with social media, everything goes viral. And I think what's more viral than social media is the word of mouth. Again, in this part of the world. Once someone focuses, these are the topics that I talk about in the book, the more you focus on your self-development and well-being and everything else and people really enjoy your company and they find that you're trustworthy and you've got credibility and integrity and all those things, you'll go a very long way. That's all you need. And to answer your question about where can you learn all this, the, what I say is, fine, you, you do have books, etc. But I think the best learning, uh, well, best way of learning, which I also mentioned in my book, just read it, is observation. You learn by observation. And this is what my uncle was telling me all the time. This is why he took me to those business meetings when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. Because he told me, he's like, Omar, don't say anything. Just listen. And that's why in the book, I also say that we were created. Uh, you know, you have two eyes. You have two nostrils. You have two ears. But you only have one mouth. Mm -hmm. Because you have to listen twice as much as you speak. Of course. So that's the reason why we have to think about these things. But a lot of us... You know, we just move on with life, but we don't really focus on, on anatomy and all these different um, important things that are, were, were built around. When you think about the next three years of your life, yeah. your entrepreneurial career, yeah. what do you think that you're going to do and focus on that's really going to inspire you? And does it matter to you as much being an entrepreneur or teaching people how to be smart entrepreneurs? That is a great question. So I'm... Um, I think it's parallel. I want to always continue, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm always invited to different schools, universities to talk about entrepreneurship, teaching entrepreneurship, and I do a lot of mentorship as well, even through the Global Shapers community. I love using this quote by Mark Twain, you know, the two important days in your life, mm -hmm. the day you were born and the day you find out why. I realize I know what's my purpose. I realize I'm an educator and, and I do that all the time, whether it's in business, I tend to educate people about either the market or the entity or the individual, etc. I'm able to, to simplify complex 
problems. And, and that's what I'm good at, I think. I, I always want to be an educator, but I definitely want to, to work on building some sort of an empire which would be sustainable, which I really will, will, will believe in and, and hope it will carry on with generations to come. But my second book is touching upon something about what I kind of want to do. My first book was on social and emotional intelligence. The second one is on artificial intelligence. And everybody's talking about it now. You know, robotics and yeah. man versus machine, etc. It's called What's Next. I'm going to talk about disruptive technologies in the different sectors. I'm going to talk about the jobs of the future mm -hmm. and then also the skills required for those jobs. So this is what I'm mm -hmm. writing about. Yep. And I'm saying that productivity is for machines and creativity is for humans or jobs are for robots and life is for people. Yeah. And in this, I hope that I will come up with something that will almost where I combine technology with, with human connection. Something like Uber, which is you know, peer to peer. So I want to do a peer to peer project, which I really love because as you said to yourself, you know, I love meeting people and I want to connect with people. Mm -hmm. So I really feel I could do a business or, or focus into something that will be man and machine, man complementing machine or machines complementing man. If people want to follow you, how would they, how would they, how would they follow you? Are you on Instagram? Yeah, everything. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Omar Al-Busaidi, not Arabian Prince, nothing fancy. So, Omar yeah. Al-Busaidi is all it is across all of those? Everything. So there you have it, my interview with the great Omar Al-Busaidi. I really hope you enjoyed it, and number one, it was worth the time. Number two, you learned a lot more about his story and his background. And number three, it just made you feel positive about your journey and what you potentially could achieve. So a little more on how this interview came about. I first met Omar when I was introduced by actually another friend of ours, a mutual friend called Sarah Al-Madani. And Omar was, uh, she said to me, look, you've got to meet this guy. He's full of energy, full of beans. And uh, I promise you that you'll really enjoy his company. So I was kind of a little bit hesitant at first, you know, meeting an Emirati guy that's an entrepreneur. So I was worried that you know, I wasn't going to get that kind of juicy stuff that I like to get out of interviews. But from the moment I met him, he had me in stitches and uh, he had a pair of these designer trainers on and uh, he was wearing it with his candor. And uh, we, we laughed a lot about that. So what I remember during the interview, though, was thinking, you know, how much more there was to his story and, you know, how much more it revealed uh, about his life and also the industry that he's in. And also, you know, he was so kind and so welcoming. This, you know, the, the energy that you get from Omar is just, he's just such a positive guy, you know. He, he, most people, when they tell the story about how they failed, they tell the story and it's kind of a bit of doom and gloom and maybe a bit of sad music needs to be played in the background through the tough bit. But for him, failure was such a core part of being successful and having that commitment to keep failing, you know. Maybe some of the decisions he made were stupid, but... You know, he, he says that himself, but, you know, just keep trying and keep trying until he got somewhere. You know, for me, you know, the, the three biggest takeaways are, number one, okay, don't ever doubt yourself. Number two, you know, really focus. If you're going to fail, then don't worry if you do and pick yourself up and try again. And number three, the story that he told about the friend of his that believed in his book more than he did. And she went and got it designed and published for him as a gift. To me, that's just... Uh, you know, a really, a really special thing. You know, overall, from an entrepreneur like Omar, it's just like, stay positive. Doesn't matter what comes your way, you can do it. You know, all that time he spent unemployed as well. You can do it, you will get there. And I think the overriding thing was he had patience and he had persistence.
If you enjoyed this podcast or have any feedback, please drop me a note via my social media handles, which you know are Spencer.Lodge on Instagram or Spencer Lodge Podcast on Instagram or Spencer Lodge Official on Facebook. Um, I'd love to hear anything you have to say or you may have learned uh, or started applying from any of this information from this show. If you're feeling extra generous with your time, a five-star review, I promise you would mean the world to me. Um, or comments on SoundCloud or anywhere you see this podcast would really help grow the podcast and get it out to more listeners. Coming up on the next podcast, oh, I'm excited about this. One of my favorite people, a real, a real superstar, a female entrepreneur. Her name is Iman Ubu, a former beauty pageant queen in Miss New York. Just recently, she has been a judge in the Miss Universe competition, um, an entrepreneur for a company called Sway Media that she developed herself, even though she trained and went to university to study to be a doctor and a surgeon. She went into the world of female entrepreneurialism and has just done an incredible job. I absolutely love Iman. She's just a, a real energetic lady and as you can tell by her name she's not from the united states she moved to the u.s when she was 15 years old and you'll learn more about that story but until then thank you so much for listening and i'll talk to you again on the next episode of the spencer lodge podcast